You're listening to a podcast of Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, where our mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. Last week, I was not here. I had the privilege of um, going up to um, Washington. Our son, our oldest son, is in the Navy. He's yeah, a- <laughs> Nobody else is apparently a part of the Navy, okay? He's an officer on a submarine. Uh, has- <laughs> and this is going to be a very long message. Um, he was on this, uh, he was, I say was because this week he came off. He was out to sea for three weeks, uh, three months, out to sea for three months in the Pacific on the submarine. Can you us, show us the, the first one? This is the, in the name of the sub is the Nevada. It's an Ohio class ballistic missile submarine. And along the back here, you can't see it from this picture, but along, it's, it's almost three football fields long. It's very big, five stories tall. And and along the back there, you can't see it, but there's these big bays, and there are 24 uh, nuclear missile silos in that submarine. There's 12 on each side as they go down, and they're obviously very big hatches. And uh, when we went in there, and so myself and other family members, because they were coming back and because it was his last tour, he's off the submarine, going to be doing land duty now, they invited us, some family members to come on board, and we went out in a tug and waited in the middle of Puget Sound, and eventually the sub was there. It, didn't, it was already surfaced, so it didn't just suddenly appear, but it was, came in and had an armada of other ships around it to protect it. And uh, they pulled a tug alongside, and they swung a plank over, and as it, we were moving and it was moving, we walked across the plank. It's not as, as horrible as it sounds. It's a big metal walkway with railings, so and we had life jackets. Went down the hatch, he gave us a tour, and went through the different parts, saw the torpedo room, touched a few torpedoes, and went into the sonar room and looked at the sonar and had lunch in the officer's galley, nice prime rib, it was very nice. And then we went down into the, um, one of the things is this long corridor, it's not really a corridor, it's a path. It's, everything in the sub is very tight, as you can imagine. And in there was this long hallway, which, is, which extends the, the length of this, and there's the 24 silos. And we walked through, and I could touch the silos. And he was explaining how they launch. My son was explaining how they launch. And it's really kind of freaky that you're touching something, and probably two feet on the other side is a nuclear missile, a nuclear warhead, 24 of them. And, uh, well, what was really cool for that, that's, that's pretty neat, but my son, because he's an officer and because it was his duty, was the officer on deck driving. He wasn't literally driving, but he's the officer giving the commands to bring the sub into the Puget Sound, which is a big deal because it's got to make turns and it's got to go through a bridge opening. The sub is bigger than the opening, is longer than the opening. So if you don't come at it straight on, we have an, we have an incident on our hands, okay? So he was the one. So if you show the next slide. So this is it coming in. This is not a picture of us. They, I was not allowed to have cameras or anything like that. But up here on top, you see guys. And that's where I was with my son and the captain and some other guys with lots of machine guns and stuff sitting up there. And uh, we, so I sat up there for about an hour, hanging over the side because it's very cramped. And uh, he was giving the orders, and we were coming in. And it was just really, it was just really pretty cool. And you can tell you're, you're pretty high up the, wa- up the side and watching things going and overhearing the communication between him and the guys below and the other ships. It was just really neat. So um, it's just, it was just, an, uh, for me, a great experience because it was my son, but also being on something that big, which we don't spend a lot of time thinking about, that is that really that powerful, 24 ballistic nuclear missiles in that one little thing. And this is one of the many subs we have. Now, I, I have to come clean. There, there was an incident on board. Um, the, I went down below, and there's this big red button, okay? I said, what's this for? There's only one way to find out. So I pushed it, and this is what happened. Yep, I, I launched a nuclear missile. I'm just it's a big ocean. They'll find it eventually. The reason I used that analogy just to tell you where I was last week, and it was pretty cool, and I'm telling everybody this week what I did last week, okay, is that, and I was thinking about it this week, is that the submarine, their, their motto of that submarine is silent century. The point is nobody's supposed to know they're around. When they're in the Pacific and they're submerged, nobody knows where they are, but there's a tremendous amount of power 
destructive power in that submarine. And we're going to be entering the book of Acts, and we're going to be reading one of the main characters, if you will, one of the main people, one of the main influences in the book of Acts is going to be the Holy Spirit. Up until now in biblical history, he's been the silent century. He's been behind the scenes in a lot of throughout the Bible. He's there throughout the Bible, but he's been pretty silent. Well, now in the book of Acts, he surfaces. In, in, in the, the third person of the Trinity surfaces. And he also, and okay, the analogy only goes so far, so work with me here. Even though he's silent, he becomes very, um, very overt now, but he also packs a tremendous amount of power. Not destructive power, but constructive power. What the Holy Spirit now does in the age of the Holy Spirit is going to be doing things that up until this point in human history has not happened. Beginning to do, <coughs> excuse me, to do more of those things, and we get to participate in that. We are in that season of the Holy Spirit's work. Now, before we, before we talk about open up chapter 1 of Acts, I need to sort of uh, make sure we're clear about a few things. And the reason is, as we read and study the Bible, there are some common perceptions, views of the Bible that hold us back from really experiencing some of the truth of the Bible, but particularly in the book of Acts. And in the first one, if you can show the, the first diagram. In the first, first diagram here is that is, is we need to be clear of how we view the Bible. How we look at reading the Bible and studying the Bible and hearing from it. Many people view the Bible as ancient history. Just, it's a long time ago. It was written over thousands of years and then it was compiled thousands of years ago. And therefore, it really has no relevance to us. It's distance in time. It's distant in culture. It's distant in ideas. And we live way far away from it and we try to learn from it, but really that distance creates barriers. And, and we don't connect it so much. We're not a part of it so much. And it's difficult sometimes for us to appreciate what's happening in the Scripture because we think it's way back then. Well, that's not the way the Scripture portrays itself. That's not the way we understand the Bible. The second diagram is that the arc of history, the arc of the story of the Bible, is continuing. The Bible, the written part, is finished as far as we're concerned. But the story hasn't stopped. It, we're part of that story. And as we crack open our scriptures and we're reading it, it's not just something that happened long time ago. It's happening now. We're a part of that. And when we read the book of Acts, it's only going to cover about 40 years. But it kickstarts the 40 years, and it's continuing on. It's going on. We're still a part of that. So as we read it, it's not just ancient history. It's present day. And, um, and that actually builds a bridge for us to understand the scriptures as we think about it and that we appreciate it. It's speaking to us because we are participating in the same drama, in the same events that are unfolding. We are participating today in the same way. Does that make sense? Okay, that's like a common sense thing, but I think a lot of times we need to make that distinction. And there's another, I'm done with that, and there's another distinction we need to sometimes make, and that is that when we read the Bible, we sometimes think it's a bunch of stories. Some people would say that it's a bunch of moral uh, lessons um, or it's a bunch of different books put together. But really, the Bible as a whole is a, is a series of 66 books, a library of 66 books with one story. It's one line of drama. And I use story. I don't mean fiction. I mean narrative, events unfolding with people involved. And there's all sorts of people in different places and different times. But there's one story throughout the entire Scripture and there's one main character throughout the entire Bible. And here's a surprise to many people. It's not us. It's not people. It's God. God from the very beginning to the very closure. It's about him and his unfolding, his creation and his re redemption of the world and what he's doing. So when we read the scriptures, he is the primary person we should be looking for. So as we read any Bible, part of the Bible, but especially the book of Acts, one of the dangers is going to be is we say, well, that's what they did. What do we do? And is that a good example? Is that not a good example? And we, we look at, well, Peter shouldn't have said this or they shouldn't have done that or whatever. And we, we can be so focused on the people and the events that we miss the fact that God is doing something. It, the first question we need to ask ourselves is, what is God doing? What, what is his intentions? What is he telling us through what he is doing? Then the second part of that is, in light of that story, in light of the narrative, 
um, in light of the, uh, what's happening in the book of Acts for the next couple months, what is the people's response to that? It's what is God doing, and then what we need to say is how did the people respond? Some will respond in belief. Many respond in unbelief. Some will respond in obedience. Many will respond in opposition. So we need to look at the series of events that happen and say, what's God doing? And in light of that, how did people respond? And guess what? That's a lot of what we need to do in our lives. What's God doing and how are we responding? That same way we read the book of Acts and the Bible is the way we should be reading our lives here and now. So as we work through the book of Acts, we've got to keep our mind, it's about God and what God's doing. It's particularly what surfaces is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's his plan. It's his mission. It's his church. He enables, directs, protects, orchestrates the unfolding of the story. So let's now begin. I hope that makes sense. That sets the stage as we go over the next couple months for uh, the book of Acts. Let's take a look now at Acts chapter 1. And we're going to walk through a few of the verses. To sort of, This is the introductory of what we're, what's going to happen. There's some specific things we need to look at, but it also sets the stage for the next, 28 chap- or the next 27 chapters of what's going on. It explains all that's going to unfold. In first one, we see, in, um, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, the book of Acts is a, the second volume that the author we know as Luke wrote. He wrote the gospel according to Luke, and he wrote this one. And uh, it's one story, but it's in, broken into two volumes, and they overlap. Act, Luke 24 and Acts 1 have a lot of overlapping. So he wrote to Theophilus, probably his benefactor, and to the church, and he said, here, I, did, I wrote to you about, the, the, about Jesus' life, what, excuse me, what he began to do and teach, Now I want to tell you a little bit about what he is continuing to do through his church. And that's the implication here. What he's saying here is what Jesus began to do, he hasn't finished. So, Theophilus, there's more to the story, and I need to tell you what it is. And and we know that Luke wrote his gospel, and we assume the book of Acts, to Theophilus after doing a lot of research, after being a part of the story, talking to eyewitnesses. In fact, in the late, latter part of Acts, we'll see that Luke actually joins the story. Uh, the, it starts saying, we did this and we did that. So he was actually a part of some of the events in Acts. And we know that he wrote this because he told Theophilus that you may be certain concerning the things that you have been taught. Why did he write Luke? Why did he write Acts? He wants us to be certain of the things you have been taught. I am a historian. I'm a a detective. I've researched this. Now I'm telling you what I found out. And through the inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit, we luckily have this book. And um, so Luke deals with Jesus' lifetime. And then we pick up now in in Acts chapter 1, Jesus leaves. The Holy Spirit comes. And actually, Holy Spirit comes chapter 2. But then he progresses on. It covers about a 30-year, 40-year period. Um, we know it probably was finished before uh, uh, 70 A.D. What was the big event that happened at 70 A.D. that Josh talked about? What happened in 70 A.D. that was cataclysmic for people? Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. He never mentions that in Acts, so we're going to have to assume it was something he would have mentioned. <laughs> so it, he, he didn't, so we assume it was written before then. Also, it's written over a 40-year period. It's not that long of a book. So he obviously is selective in what he's talking about. Sometimes in the beginning, it goes pretty fast. It's this, this, this. And then we have years gaps. They did this, and then a while later. So we have to remember that sometimes. But he also has to be selective. He can't tell 40 years worth of stuff. It's a short book. So he summarizes, again, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what he wants us to, what, what he wants him to do. Luke 24, which we looked at last, last week, uh, spends a lot of time unpacking the similar material of Acts. And he, um, anyways, we, need to, we, we can move on. In verse 2, he says, uh, he began to do, until the day he was taken up, after he being Jesus, um, after he was given commands through the Holy Spirit to his apostles and prophets. So in Acts 24, he goes through that, and Jesus unpacks the words. He unpacks, tells them about that. He says that all the Psalms and the prophets and all the, all, all the Bible talks about me. He opens 
minds so they can understand the scripture. He, he taught, he spent 40 days giving them intensive school. And it's more than that, but he's told us that he specifically opened them so they could gain that understanding. And he says that you need, the Bible, all the Bible talks about my death, burial, and resurrection. And that this message will be proclaimed to the whole world. And that's what, that's what he's talking about in, in, in verse 2. Then in verse 3, he says, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering and many proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So in this 40 days, Jesus rises from the dead, and there's a 40-day period where he's walking around, talking, spending time with lots of people, lots of different events. We only have a few of them recorded. But we know he, he, we, we're told that he actually met with hundreds of people during this time. It's not just 12 that saw him. It was hundreds of people, and at times it was very public. So people saw the risen Christ walking around, talking, teaching, and he gave them this intense school. Uh, it proves the resurrection. He gave them proof uh, and for 40 days. It touched him. He talked. He ate. He interacted. His body was different, but it was him. I also notice the them. He, he uh, presented himself to them. Uh, it's, it's plural. It's witnesses. Many people saw him do this. Speaking about the kingdom of God. He was speaking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a phrase that's used often in the Bible, mostly in the New Testament. The concepts throughout the Old Testament, but in Luke talked a lot about it a lot. The kingdom of God is the redemptive reign of God over his people. It's the rule of God. It's, it's God's kingship through Jesus. That's why Jesus is often referred to as Lord, as king, as master. He is the king. And, um, it's, and it's God's promise of rule through the expression of and work of what Christ has done. The kingdom is linked to the gospel. So I want to make this clear that when we talk about the kingdom of God, there is a direct link. It's another way of saying there's some slight nuances, differences, but it's, about, it's always linked to the gospel. For example, when Jesus began his ministry back in Luke chapter 4, he says, he said, I'm, in the very beginning, he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Or he, literally, he's, I need to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. So he announces his ministry by saying, I need to preach the gospel of the kingdom. When he trained the twelve in Luke chapter 9, he says that he got them together and he told them some things. And he says, I want you to go out and, and, and preach. I want you to, he says, proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And then Jesus gives more explanation. And then we're told in verse 6 of chapter 9, he says, And they, his disciples, departed to all the villages, preaching the gospel and healing. So he said, I want you to talk about the kingdom. And then we're told they proclaim the gospel. So the gospel and the kingdom go hand in hand. In fact, in Acts 28, the last verses of the book of Acts, the way it concludes is that Paul was in prison. He was actually in a house arrest, and he lived for two whole years there. And it says that the summary, the last verse of the Acts is, and he proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So the book ends with the kingdom and the gospel being proclaimed by Paul while he was under house arrest. Now, the, this is, I want to spend a little time on this because in our day and age, and if you listen to Christian vocabulary and what people say, sometimes the kingdom language is thrown out there and sometimes inappropriately. Kingdom is not geographic. Okay, we think of kingdom as ge geography. That's the United Kingdom or it's a certain kingdom. We think of a boundary and a king and that's his rule. That's not the kingdom of God. God does not think in the sense of geography like we do. Kingdom is more relational. It's a kingship. He is ruling. Well, if it's not geographic, then what is it? It is a kingship over his people. It's his reign over his redeemed people. We would know them as, in our day and age, as Christians. He, has, he rules. He, has, he, has, he is sovereign over all the universe, yes. But in a very particular way, he is the king over his own people. And Jesus taught over and over again, there are some people in the kingdom and there are some people not in the kingdom. And Paul taught the same thing. There are some people who are, are in the kingdom and then some people who are, are not. And, and then Paul gives lists. If you see this, these people are not in the kingdom of God. And in our day and age, that's kind of, it seems harsh. It's, we don't like in our culture in and out mentalities. You got it, you don't have it. We don't like that mentality, but yet the biblical concept of the kingdom is there's in and there's out. And that's the only two choices. You're in it or you're not. And we need to, we need to stay there. I mean, we need to keep, be faithful to that kind of 
kind of language. And the only entry into the kingdom is through response to the gospel message. It is the only way to get in is to acknowledge the king of Jesus and do so in repentance and faith. Where does this come in? For just as a simple example, is that in Colossians 1, Paul's talking about uh, about the church. He says, He, God the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into His kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So he describes the gospel message as, God delivers us from the dominion, the kingship of darkness, and transfers us into His kingdom. How? Through the gospel, through the redemption and forgiveness of our sins. And... The reason I'm belaboring this point a little bit is, and, and, and maybe it's uh, not a question on top of your mind, but if you're aware and listen to a lot of Christian talking, whether radio or in books, magazines, we talk a lot about the kingdom, but unfortunately, we talk about us extending and expanding God's kingdom. We don't extend and expand God's kingdom. We can't. God extends his kingdom. We don't do that. It's his kingship, not ours. And we participate in that expansion by doing what he tells us to do, which we'll look at in a minute, by basically sharing the gospel message of the kingdom. But our works, what we do, does not extend the kingdom. And the reason this comes up oftentimes is a lot of people with social justice and helping the poor and the needy and doing acts of service, and they'll talk about it doing kingdom work. The problem is that's not really kingdom work. Now, Hear me before everybody gets in a tizzy, okay? We should do those acts of service. We should be generous to people and merciful to people and serve people who are not Christians because that's the way God served us, merciful and generous, and we should do that to them. So please let me be clear. We are commanded to serve people like that. Christ in the New Testament talks a lot about that. But it never talks about it being an advancement of the kingdom. We can do swap and play, trash the churches, community garden, Compassion Connect, serving Roosevelt High School, and we should serve them. However, let's don't make the misconception that we're advancing God's kingdom doing so. We're not. Now, why am I even bothering talking about this? And, and the reason is, it's important to remember, you go back, kingdom and gospel go together. We should be serving. We should be doing those acts of service and generosity to the community. But if we never bring in the gospel message, at some point, I'm not saying every time we do something we have to hand them a track. I'm not saying that. But if we don't at some point talk about Christ dying for sins and the redemption that they have, they will never, they'll be benefited, that's great, but they eternally will not benefit and they won't get into God's kingdom. God's kingdom is through Christ and belief and repentance and faith in Christ. It's not just for having somebody do something nice to you. Does that make sense? Okay. The second part of that is I want to I want to spend a little time I wanted to spend a little time on this is sometimes we think that we get to be part of the kingdom by association. We think, well, if I hang out with kingdom people or I hang out with Christians, it's like being a Christian. If I hang out with Christians, I get the benefits of being a Christian. If I hang out by go to the gathering, I go to worship, I serve, I even do ministries, then I'm sort of in the kingdom. No, you're not. Being in the kingdom, there's only one way, and that is to respond to the gospel in repentance and faith. That brings you into the kingdom, receiving that redemption and forgiveness of sins. That makes you in the kingdom. People can be, there's lots of people around that and, and think because they're close to it, God looks at them differently. No, that's his generosity to us, but unless we take that step of faith, we don't get in the kingdom. I want to move on. In verse 4 and 5, he says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the, whole, of the Father, which he, said, you, you heard, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you, were, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. He talks about the promise of, of, of the Father. Back in the, earlier in the Gospels, both in Luke, but more in the Gospel of John, Jesus spent a lot of time talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. He said that, that he, he was going to go. Jesus is telling them about his death and resurrection. He said, I'm going to be going to, the, to be with the person who sent me, the Father. And he says, and I tell you the truth, that it's to your advantage that I go away. Which didn't make sense to the disciples. Hey, you're, you're Jesus. You're the Messiah. We want you to stay. He goes, it's to your advantage. It's your benefit that I leave. Because when I leave, the Helper will come to you. The Holy Spirit will be sent to you. And he will, 
Uh, and when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And then he says, I have many things, Jesus is saying this to his disciples, I have many things to tell you that you're not ready for. So when I leave, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And, what, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me and take what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus, a long time before this ever happened, said to his disciples, I have to leave. I have to go away. It doesn't make sense to you guys now. It won't at the moment. But I'm telling you, I'm not going to leave you helpless. The Holy Spirit's coming. And what he's saying now in, in these verses in, in the book of Acts 4 and 5 is, I promised you the Holy Spirit is coming. Now I want you to sit tight and wait. When I leave, he's going to come. And uh, what's, what's really kind of cool here, if you look at the beginning of Luke, in the beginning of the book of Acts, is the, the book of Acts, the book of Luke and Luke 1 begins with this announcement um, of the coming of the Holy Spirit preceding the birth of Jesus. And that he talks to Mary, and Mary's told, you're going to be pregnant. And Mary goes, what? I'm a virgin. The last I knew, that didn't work that way. And, uh, and so the, the angel says to her, he says to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, a child will be born and will be called Holy, the Son of God. So Luke begins his gospel with this angelic announcement that the Holy Spirit's going to come and the Savior of the world will be born. Fast forward, he begins the book of Luke, Luke chapter 1, with an announcement that the same Holy Spirit is coming, but not to the birth of the Messiah, but to the birth of the church who will take the name of the Savior to the rest of the world. The same Holy Spirit comes in both places. Luke specifically announced that uh, in both places. In verse 5, he says, For you baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not, um, not many days from now. Now, in, in John's baptism, they were, um, for John baptized with water, um, John the Baptist was the last Old Testament prophet. Yes, I know he was in the New Testament, but he's the last one before Christ who had something to say. And he announced the immediate coming of the Messiah. And his baptism was a baptism of repentance. And basically people were saying, I'm ready for God to come. I'm going to get baptized. I'm ready for God to come. And then he, but we are told that Jesus is using that, that baptism John does. You're going to get something different. He wanted to remind them of that imagery. But you're going to get baptized with the Holy Spirit. And it's not just a cleansing, ready for God to come. But God came. The Holy Spirit is God, and he's going to reside in you and dwell in you, and he's going to, in his indwelling, empower you to do what I want. He's showing a big contrast there. And what's interesting is, if we look back when Jesus talks about the baptism of John, Jesus was baptized by John. So he goes back, in Luke chapter, in chapter 3, we have that Jesus went down and was baptized by John. And, and when he was being baptized, um, Jesus was baptized, and we're told that... Um, in Luke, in Luke 3, that the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So, and when Jesus was baptized by John, the Holy Spirit descended on him, and God said, I'm, this is my Son. This is, this is awesome. Out loud. He visually showed people the Holy Spirit. He out loud spoke. They heard and saw God descend on Christ. Pretty an awesome moment. And then, a little later, immediately after that, we are told that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, went out into the desert to be tempted by the devil. The Holy Spirit is the one filled with the Holy Spirit doing it. When Jesus defeats Satan, comes back, and we're told later in the same chapter, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit of Galilee, and a report about him spread throughout the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. My point is this, Jesus, Luke is using the understanding of John's baptism for repentance. Now that same Holy Spirit that energized Jesus' ministry, from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he's full of the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that same Holy Spirit is now going to reside in you. That's what he's saying. He wants them to draw that connection. And it's not just a separate thing. It's not a lesser spirit. It's not somebody, it's not the B team. It is God himself is going to indwell you and get this stuff done. And then in verse 6, they respond. They say, so 
when, do they, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, when will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Now, they ask a question. It, it's, let's be fair to them. It's a, it's a fair question. Jesus has been building up. He's been around there for 40 days. He's been talking to them about the kingdom. When is this going to happen? Now, they have, an, this is an expression of their Jewish hope of the, of the coming of the Messiah and the restoration as they understood it of Israel. And, um, and there's a little nationalistic overtone here. They're, they want Israel, Rome to go, and Israel to be back to it was. There's a little, I think, a little misunderstanding in their part what they were expecting. But let's be fair to these guys. At least they understood one thing. They understood that the responsibility of the coming of the kingdom and, their, and uh, the establishment permanently of the reign of God was Jesus' issue, not theirs. They weren't there to do that. They're saying, Lord, when are you going to do that? And, he's, and so he responds. He responds in verse 7. He says, Jesus says to them, It's not for you to know the times and seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And um, so basically he's trying to say, good question. He doesn't reprimand them. He doesn't make fun of them. Good question. Here's the deal. God has a plan. God's going to do his plan. It's not for you guys to worry about the details. The seasons, the times, God has that all worked out. You guys don't worry about that. And it's, it's not your business. You have other things to worry about. And by implication, we don't need to worry about those things. But also implied in his answer is this. And that is, and like Jesus spent a lot of time in the Gospel of Luke talking about, he says, be ready because when the kingdom does come, you better be ready or it'll be too late. So he's saying, you don't worry about the times, but be prepared for the times. Because they're going to come when, when, when the Father has determined it. And then we get to verse 8. And verse 8 is a, is a key verse for understanding the book of Acts. And he says, but, when, but you will receive... So this is his answer to them. When is all this going to happen? Don't worry about it. But this starts with a contrast. The word but. I want you to pay attention to this other part. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Just three observations in this, and then we're going to look at some detail. First of all, this is the theme verse for the book of Acts. We will, we will look through the book of Acts, and we'll see that this progression of the Holy Spirit empowering them, and they're moving through this and being witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, is the way the book, the book was written. Secondly, is we understand verse 8. We being Christians throughout history, theologically look at this as what we understand as a commission. Jesus gave what we know as great commissions, or these are, okay, I'm about to leave. I, there's one last thing I need to tell you. Make sure you get this done. Matthew 28, Luke 24, and, and Acts, Acts 1. This is one of those times where he says, I'm leaving one last thing. I want these words to be the last thing I say. You need to be my witnesses in my power to the whole world. And we understand that as a great commission. Um, and we are, because, let's go back, this is why it's important to know how to read the Bible, that commission is not just for the 12, 12 apostles and 12 disciples. It's our commission. It's what we have been mandated to do. It's what God wants us to do. It's a continuous story. We're still in the line of the book of Acts. We're participating in that. We need to be committed to the same mission. Also, in ver- in this, if, if you look at the way this is worded, it is both a commission, I want you guys to go do this, but it's also a promise. If you notice the way it's worded, it's written in the passive. This will happen. You will receive the power. You will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And and God knows he has a plan, and he's going to get that plan done. And he's inviting them to participate in that. So in that one verse, there is both the commission, the commitment to go on mission, but there's also the promise that the mission is going to get done. So the question is, are you participating in the mission? Are we participating in that mission? Now, let's just spend a few minutes on this verse. He he says, but you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. Power, the word means uh, enablement, ability, boldness, insight, discernment. I just want to get a little interaction with you guys here. Why do we need power? I mean, the easy thing is to read over this and say, oh yeah, we we, we get power. Why? I want us to just spend a little time thinking about it. Why does God have to give us power to go on mission? Hang on, what's that? We're up against power. Yeah, we, in that one verse, there's a dominion of darkness, and then you transfer it. That's good. 
that we're, there's war, spiritually speaking, against Satan. There's power. Somebody else said something? Why not? Why can't we do it ourselves? But what, what is it we're supposed to do that we need power for? Why do we need power? Why can't, we, why can't I just go talk to people about Jesus? Why can't we just form organizations that, that stand for Jesus? Why does he say you need to be enabled to get this done? I'm, I'm not looking for one specific answer. I think there's a lot of them. But the, well, the reason I'm doing this is that it's quick to say, yeah, yeah, we get power. But why do we get power? Yeah, it, there's a reliance that he's going to do something, right? Which implies what? If, if it requires God to do something, what does that imply about what we're doing? It's hard. It's big. <laughs> okay? You know, the whole thing, is there a stone big enough that God can't push it kind of thing? Well, I don't know about God, but we can't. Okay? It's got to be big. If it requires God to get it done, it's got to be an awesome, huge task that we can't do without it. What are some other reasons? It's not going to work, right? If God doesn't get it done. Absolutely. That is a huge one. We, this isn't a natural work. This isn't a government work. This is why he didn't in, in, invent an organization the way it is. What he just said is that it's a natural work. Being born again, being convicted of sin... Um, being understanding that we're dead in our sins and being born again, regenerated, is a work of the Holy Spirit, not us. You can be Billy Graham. You can be uh, uh, Mark Driscoll. You can be anybody you want. But if the Holy Spirit doesn't do a work, your words go nowhere. Okay? By the way, that's one of the confidences that this might seem a little... I don't know what it seems like. I'm just going to say it. Getting up here and doing this week after week... You know, this isn't easy. I'm not really very good at this. This is not where I naturally like to be in front of people, okay? I'm a loner. I'm an introvert, all that kind of stuff. But the only reason, not the only reason, a primary reason that for somebody to get up here and say this is that I can just say some words. I'm really banking big time that the Holy Spirit can do some work with what I have to say, okay? Okay, because if it's dependent on me, you guys are sunk, okay? Amen. Okay. It has to be the Holy Spirit doing the work. Can somebody think of some other things? Yeah, it, it's, it, it's, part of this is it's not just a big work because it's God's work. It's a big work because the goal is to change the world in the sense of bringing the gospel to the world. And most, not just many, most people will oppose that message, the scripture says. And many of them, not just because they turn a deaf ear and not like it, many, as we'll see through the Acts, actually physically, violently oppose that message. And it's still true today in many parts of the world. Um, and a big part of that is that, we, and part of that, as I thought about, it, is the fear of man. We, we don't want to make enemies. We don't want to be rejected. We, we want to have friends. We, be, we don't want to be going against the current of culture. And there's that fear, fear of hardship, fear of harm. It's the same kind of thing. We're, we're sinners. I mean, it might seem like no duh, but we're selfish. We're prideful. And we rather serve ourselves than a greater good of mankind, especially those who are sometimes our enemies. And yet God has required that we go and we serve them and tell them he forgives them and he loves them even when they don't love us. Now, I don't know about you. I have enough trouble telling people I like that, I, that God loves them. How is it going to tell people who don't like us, who are enemies, telling them, yes, I know you don't like me, but God still loves you and died for you takes a whole lot of power. It takes energy I don't have. I'm going to guess that most of you don't have. We have pre- and one of the things that's going to show up early in the book of Acts is people are prejudiced. Pe- people don't like people different than them. And we're going to see big time where God has to do from the Holy Spirit some very dramatic events to get the church out of Jerusalem. They, they say, oh yeah, I, I got it, Lord. And they stayed put. They liked relating to Jewish, other Jewish Christians. And God had to give them this 
boot out of this out of the city he just told them where they're going but they didn't leave that why they're prejudiced they're racial i don't want to take the gospel to the gentiles well you're going to it takes an empowerment to do that we in our culture sometimes don't like being around people different than us and it takes a power and enablement that allows us to do that it's spiritual work requires spiritual ability. Kingdom work requires kingdom power. And we're going to see through the book of Acts, and we can move on here, see through Acts, all sorts of examples of this power popping up. It's going to be speaking with boldness. They're going to be told, you be quiet, or we're going to arrest you and persecute you and kill you. So what's their answer? They speak bolder. Okay, that's not a natural thing. That's the Holy Spirit. We'll see that in a couple weeks. They provide understanding. They're being led. Individuals are led. Go here and do this and say this. Whole churches are led. Go here, do this, and say this. So there's a leading, understanding what's going to happen, performing miracles and hearing, performing miracles and healings. And also, as Josh alluded to, there's a lot of hardship and suffering. Sorry, this isn't going to be one of those books, the campaign, woohoo, you know, we get to do, live in constant joy and peace and wealth and health, health and wealth with the gospel. We're going to see some of these guys suffered a great deal for the sake of the kingdom. And we're called, some of us, to that same kind of suffering. He says in there, and you will be my witnesses. Notice the focus. You will be my witnesses. What are we supposed to witness about? Christ. We're supposed to be talking about Christ. Witness is to establish the facts, is to give testimony about what his experiences. Now, in one, in one respect, there were, they were the eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. So that's important. They established that. And, um, and you remember in verse 3, it said he presented them alive with many proofs for 40 days. They saw that. It is interesting that the word um, witness in this verse comes from the Greek word, and I forgot how to pronounce it, martyries, something like that. And it means to witness. And because the witnesses in the book of Acts, the people who were called witnesses, most of them, many of them, as they witnessed, end up dying. In English, we get the word martyr is someone who dies instead of giving up what they believe so we draw that understanding from the fact of witnessing was not easy bearing testimony of what god has done and is doing sometimes requiring requires to be a witness is really requiring to be a martyr and also though when he says you'll be my witnesses we know also that it means also declaring the message of the gospel not just saying you know, what do we do? We didn't observe Christ's resurrection 2,000 years ago, so what do we do? Does that mean it doesn't apply to us? No. We know that he also means the message of that resurrection. For example, in Luke 24, which overlaps Luke uh, uh, Acts 1, he said, Jesus said, it was written that the Christ should suffer and die and, and, and rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So he told them, he's saying, you need to confirm that, I was, that what I say is true and that I'm really alive, and you need to go tell the whole world about that. That's what it means to be a witness of Christ. And he goes, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. This is the framework for the book of Acts, and it has two meanings to it, two understandings of it. One is, is that geographic expansion. In the beginning of Acts, they're in Jerusalem. Then they moved to Judea and Samaria, and then they moved to the ends of the earth. Paul, the book ends with Paul in, in Rome, Rome, Italy. Uh, not quite the end of the earth, but it's the head of the kingdom, the geo, geopolitical kingdom of that time. So that moves that way. But it's also ethnic. It's cultural. The movement of the book of Acts is geographic, but it's also ethnically or culturally done. They begin with Jews, first to the Jews, then they came to the to the non-Jews or the close Jews nearby, and then they move to people who are Gentiles or non-Jews very far away, both geographically and especially culturally, that was very different. And, and um, so there's both this geographic and, and um, ethnic aspect to it. So we are to be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. What does that mean for us? Again, just like saying we have power, what does that got to do with us? We don't live in Jerusalem. Anybody? Never been there. Okay. What would it mean for Red Sea to take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth? T tell me what you think that might mean. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, well, first of all, Jerusalem 
people close to you, right? Both geographically and culturally, right? What else? This, it's not a trick question. What would it look like? I mean, we're, we're commissioned as a church to do this. Well, what is it? What does it look like? Somebody has something to say? might mean some people move someplace not here, like to California, and plant um, far away. Or at least not really far away, but a distance away. That, so you have to actually move and live there. What else might this look like? Going to Spain. Now, who would do that? Okay, I, this, this is not... Um, the reason I do this is... We read these things, and if this is the great commission to us, to go in power, why are we doing that? What does that look like? And we're supposed to, this is, the, this is where we're going. If we don't sit there and name where we're going, how do we know we ever got there? How do we know what we're doing? We need to name these things. So let's give you an example. There's a common way, and people look at Acts 1-8. They, they have a way of thinking through this. They go near, 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 far, far, near, far, far. Okay? That, I've clarified everything with you guys, right? Okay? Near, 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 far, far, near, far, far. So can you show the first one? Okay. Near in distance, near in culture. We have some family members, neighbors, people who are close by geographically and who are like us culturally. That's Jerusalem. Near, near. They're near us, both in distance and culture. The second group of people would be the next slide. They're near far, near in distance, but far in culture. Who to us at Red Sea might be near in distance, but far in culture? Kim, do you have something to say? Vancouver. No, that's far, far. Okay. Latino culture. I was talking to a pastor a little while ago, trying to reach Latino, apparently, I think it's north of Fezzedin, there's a a, a large number of Latinos population. Many of them uh, don't speak English. They're first generation from Mexico or other parts. They are geographically in the same peninsula. They're in our neighborhoods. But culturally, they might not even speak our language, or at least they might be second generation. There are cultural differences of it. In fact, when I, we first came here to Red Sea, uh, Red Sea held uh, English as second language classes downstairs. And we taught the Latino, the Latino people who came who needed to work on English. We had classes for them. That was a near-far ministry. That's the next one. Would be far, far in distance, but near in culture. There are people who are not geographically near us, but there are people who, with language, culture, we can probably communicate well. Who, who might be an example of that? Ventura, in, in a way, right? People who are there had to move there, but they they still speak. I think they still speak English. Do they? Okay, okay. They, they dress probably differently and stuff like that. They're probably a little bit tanner, okay? Other than that, I think there's a good relationship there. And, and actually, this one, it used to be the hardest one, but now it's becoming the more prevalent. Because of the Internet and because of stuff like that, we can actually communicate all around the world with, in common language and stuff like that. We can actually have ministries. I talked to another group of guys who have a ministry to Latin America and to China on a website doing some teachings where they are far in distance, but they're near in culture so that they are related to them. And that's what. And what's the last one? Far, far. Far in distance, far in culture. Who might that be? Spain. The, the Basque people in Spain. They are far away in distance, but they actually are also far away in culture. They don't even speak Spanish. They speak Basque. It's a very different language, a very old language. And, and Billy and Tara have to learn, and the kids have to learn that language, um, and, and, uh, which makes it very difficult for them. And they have to move there and become part of that culture, and they have to change to become part of the Basque culture. Um, and we have an opportunity with the SUSA, the students in the USA, which that's where they are now with, with working with the students, that they come over here and they're from far away, but they get to experience our culture. So that's a big way that we're a part of the far, far um, with, with, at Red Sea. I wanted to walk through that with us because it's important. If we're going to have power and we're going to go on mission, if we don't define the mission, then we sit around talking about it, but we need to say to ourselves as a church and as a people and as individuals, this is where we're going. 
And then he says here in verses 9 through 11, And when he had said these things, um, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, he went, and behold, two men stood by them in white robes and, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from, um, from you into heaven, will come in the same way you, as you saw him go into heaven. This is, we know theologically, as the ascension. This is actually part of, when we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he lived, he died, he rose again from the dead, uh, and that he ascended into heaven and will return, is part of the whole message of the gospel. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. I want to highlight some things. I I don't know, I read this, and I, I think it's, I have a hard time not laughing. I don't know, I mean, it's just me. I'm sure it was very dramatic, okay? But, I mean, I can just see him standing there. Just, Jesus is there physically, talks to them, and he just starts going up. I mean, we've seen the walk on the water thing, but now he's flying, you know, and he's just going up. And it says that a cloud enveloped him, and he just disappeared. And they were just standing there staring at the sky. We probably would do the same thing. Like, are you coming back? Are you going to do a few flips and return? What's going to happen? And it's so much so that the angels showed up, and they didn't even notice I mean, and, and had it, God had to send some angels and slap them and say, guys, come on, come on, come on. And you need to return to Jerusalem. Let's go, let's go. Let's pick up the pace a little bit. So I'm interpreting here, okay? Maybe a little bit, okay? But it's just one of those, there's certain stories in the Bible that I'm like, it would have been cool to be there, but uh, why the ascension was a big deal, just really quickly. First of all, Jesus' body is no longer here. He'd be, well, if Jesus was here and, and his body was here, I believe, well, he chose, in God's sovereignty, he chose not to be here. Jesus knew he wasn't staying, and his resurrected body left. That's why Jesus isn't here. Uh, we know where he went. He went to be heaven. We also know something else. He's going to return. Physically, his body someday will come down and return. That's what he just said. The angels just told us. So we know there's a coming again. Jesus physically will return back to earth. In the same way, we know it is the second coming. We also know that there's a great exchange that's happening here. The presence of God being in Jesus has left. But now we is a pause. It's only a couple hours, but there's a pause. And then the, the presence of God in the, in the presence of the Holy Spirit arrives. Jesus says, if I don't go, he doesn't come. Jesus left. Now we're waiting for him to come. Also, it demonstrates, too, just as a little more subtle, that Jesus in his glorified body went to be in the presence of the Father. We can also have this anticipation that someday those who are believers in Christ will also, we are told, have glorified bodies. And where will we be able to go? In the presence of the Father. We know that a physical body can be in God's presence because that's where Christ is. And our bodies, we are told, will be like his, not his, but like his. So that gives us hope that we will be in the experience, the presence of God, in hu- and when we will be uh, in our resurrected bodies. And then we see that the, the disciples responded. Now we're going to jump down to verse 12, and he said, and you don't have this slide, I don't think. Um, so as I told you, this is what God did. How did they respond? We're told in verse 12 through 14, he says, And they returned to Jerusalem. Where did he tell them to go? Jerusalem. That was a good choice on their part. They returned to Jerusalem. They went up an upper room and they waited and were told that lists the names of the disciples. And then it says, All these were with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So there's a whole group of them go back to Jerusalem and they spend their time praying and waiting, and, and we know at this time that not only there are hundreds of them, but we also know that Mary and Jesus' brothers, and maybe brothers and sisters, uh, are part of that, um, uh, with that. Now, I want to conclude by just going back to, to verse 8. I want us to just, just we're going to wrap things up here. Verse 8 is, sets the tone for the book of Acts. Book 8 should set the tone for Red Sea. We'll be coming back to this uh, throughout the book of Acts. Uh, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. That commissioning and promise to the disciples is also to us. 
the, the promise of the Holy Spirit, the giving of that mandate to go do those things is also good. We participate. We're in the same story. So I want to ask some questions, and I want to give you some things to pray about this week particularly as we go into the book of Acts. I want to ask the first couple questions about us as Red Sea. As we think about this, and then we are directed through this study of Acts as us as a church, two questions to think about and to pray about for Red Sea. First one, what are we doing as a church that requires the enabling power of the Holy Spirit? Can we explain everything we do by moderately good organization, human effort, logistics? What are we doing as a church that requires the enabling power of the Holy Spirit? And the second one is, who specifically are we being witness to with the gospel message? It's the two parts of the verse. Who specifically are we being witnesses to with the gospel message? If we can't name them and describe them, and we're not connected with them, we're not, we're not doing it. Does that make sense? I want to get personal here, too. See, the very thing, the easy part of being part of a church is because we can hide in the crowd. Any, any organization. We can hide. We can make it the organizational responsibility, and we can think of about it from the organization. And we hide in the crowd. So I want to ask you as an individual, if you name the name of Christ, if you claim to be a follower of Christ, this Acts 1-8 is a mandate, is a commission, is a promise to you as an individual as well as the church. So I ask the same two questions to you. Who, I mean, excuse me, the first one is, what are you doing in your life that requires the enabling power of the Holy Spirit? What specifically are you doing in your life that requires, if God doesn't intervene and act, it's going to be a disaster? Secondly, Who specifically are you being a witness to with the gospel message? Who specifically are you being a witness to with the gospel message? Again, if you can't name them and show the connection, you're not a witness to them. Does that make sense? We need to, and as we move into Acts, I I would ask that we spend some time thinking about this, praying about this, thinking about Acts 1-8 as a, as a paradigm, as a framework for our praying for Red Sea, but also I would challenge you to pray for yourself. Power and the mission of who you're reaching, though that combination, God has promised that he's going to act and work and do that. The question is not whether he's going to do it. The question is, are we going to be on board with what he's doing? As we go to communion today, I invite you to think about that. Up there are two red pieces of paper with Acts 1-8 on it. And as you go up and celebrate that Christ died for our sins and we thank him for what he has done for us and celebrate his death and resurrection, remind also that he is also, the reason we have this Lord's Supper is because he's ascended. He's still not here. But also pray and say, Lord, you have given us both the commission and the promise of having, um, of, of having the power and also the witnesses. So spend some time, if you can, when you take communion, thinking about that. Power, witness. Lord, what does that look like in our life? And I would like you to especially thank him for the promise of those in our life as a church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have not left us alone as orphans. That you are drawing us to yourself always and continually, that we see more of your glory, more of your, the benefits and the satisfaction of being united with Christ. But Lord, it is not only all about us, it is also about what we share with others, that you have promised that we would have power through the indwelling of your Spirit to be your witnesses. And Lord, I just pray that we can embrace that Embrace the challenge, embrace the, uh, all that that would fear, that would hold us back, 
but especially embrace the excitement of being unleashed with your power to, to be a part of your redeeming the world to yourself. That is a huge, huge thing in the world's history, but also in individual person's history. We thank you, Lord, for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. And Lord, we thank you for the indwelling of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at redseachurch.org.